Welcome to Fresno's Best Podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Maddox. Today we have Elliot Balch on the show. Elliot is the president and CEO of the Downtown Fresno Partnership, which is a 501c6. The partnership is leading Downtown Fresno toward its future as a vibrant hub of business activity by promoting downtown's image, supporting physical improvements and development, advocating for merchants, and hosting special events that bring new life to the historic core of our city. We discuss a lot in this conversation, including public-private partnerships, signage, parking meters, Chuck Chansey Park, police presence and the benefits of bicycle patrols, the homeless issue, Christmas Tree Lane, Oppenheimer, Peeves, gentrification, Norris ordinances, and more. Please enjoy our conversation, and Baker will take us there. Making convos to elevate guests. Politics, religion, culture, art, music. Show some respect to the best little city left in the U.S. Fresno's best. Fresno's best. Elliot, where, where do you like to eat in Fresno? Oh man. Well, I love, I mean, I, I, my thoughts go to downtown on a Saturday morning and we've got pop-up action going on at the Sun Stereo warehouse with plants and flowers and vendors. If you're at, if you're at Libelula on a Saturday morning for brunch, that's one of the classic brunch spots I think that we have in town and people from out of town have really discovered it too. Do you think they need a bigger location? Who, Libelula? Well, maybe so. I think they do because, you know, sometimes I go there and I think you guys would do well with, you know, maybe a thousand more square feet potentially. I'm I'm not sure. Uh, But I love this place. I mean, it's an interesting question you asked because I've found myself having this conversation with a few people lately is uh, when you look carefully at downtown and uh, vacancies, there's actually more vacancy in larger spaces because that requires a bigger tenant. Maybe they have more credit history. It might be a national retailer, entertainment, whatever. Versus when you have a smaller space that's got a kitchen, we've got a lot of demand for those spaces, right? Because somebody's just starting something or maybe they're coming up from having the food truck or working out of their home. And so it's kind of a, you're asking about one particular case, but there's a broader issue there of how, yeah, typically smaller restaurant spaces, we have a lot of demand. Okay. Well, let me ask you a follow-up. What's your favorite place to eat that's not in downtown? <laughs> oh, gosh. Well, I mean, there, we we do have a lot of good places. I've, mm, gosh. Let's say, let's, say to, for, let's say for lunch, a work lunch. It's hard to pick one, a work lunch. You know, I really like what, I really like what the Smith Camps do with a few of their brands, but um, made the Mediterranean bowls. Oh yeah, that is my favorite lunch place. That's a solid deal right there. Because yeah. you don't you don't leave that place after lunch, like wanting to go to sleep or take a nap or something, and you feel like you made a healthy choice. So then you can mess up for dinner. Um, there you go. So I always <laughs> I always appreciate going there for lunch. <laughs> Um, I'm sure we could talk about food all day, but let's jump into some some questions. I have some simple kind of like definitional questions to start with. So can you tell us the difference between a 501c6 and a 501c3? I don't personally know the difference. Yeah. Well, both are nonprofits. If you're a 501c6, you're a typically a membership organization. So places like chambers of commerce or trade associations typically are 501c6s. And that's what our downtown partnership is because we do have members. They pay in through the assessments on their property taxes. So would a homeowners association also be a 501c6? You know, I'm not sure. And homeowners associations are maybe a little bit more private than we are. We're kind of this public-private thing. Okay. I don't know that a homeowners association would have any tax recognition, but I guess it might be. Okay. Okay. What's the benefits of a 501c6 for, for the members and for you? Yeah, like any nonprofit designation, 501c6s don't pay income tax. So when you say nonprofit, really that's in the Internal Revenue Code and all of those designations don't pay don't pay income tax the way a private corporation would or an individual. Okay. So and then the extra thing with a 501c3, which was the other part of your question, those are public charities or foundations and private foundations and they don't pay you you can get tax 
deduction for contributing to those. And that's the distinction. You I don't see. get a tax deduction for contributing to a 501c6. However, however, really, if you think about who those members are and the dollars they're paying for their membership, if it's a chamber of commerce or a trade association, or in our case, you're paying an extra little bit of property tax as your membership, those are business expenses, right? So actually they are tax deductible, just not as charitable deductions. Okay. It's just a different pathway to the same end, essentially. Right. Okay. And then can you can you explain what the downtown Fresno property and business improvement district is? Yes. So before 2000, there was no structure for property owners in downtown to collect their, assemble their resources and assemble themselves to do things that no single property owner would do. And the city has got lots of things that it has to do. And so in between, the question is, how do we organize ourselves to um, take care of the things that, you know, whether that's uh, maintenance issues and the level of clean and safe, or whether that's um, marketing for the area where we want to have a good presence for downtown in general, or even events that would activate the retail environment. If we just leave it up to individual properties, it's those are beyond the scope of any one property. So we need to have a way to uh, organize ourselves and our resources through some dollars to be able to take those things on and provide those things that benefit everyone in the area. So a P bit is that. And in particular, the P part is that it's property owners through their property tax paying assessments to make the make it possible. Okay. So your members in the association vote for leadership. What do they look for when they're voting for leaders of the partnership? Well, I don't know what each voter <laughs> is looking yeah. for, but I can tell you that it's what's real important is that we've got folks who, and I think maybe a little bit different kind of the more philosophical aspect of your question about 501c6, 501c3, and different kinds of organizations is, I mean, we certainly exist to do good in the community and measure ourselves that way. But also what what we do as the downtown partnership really is mission critical for business and real estate success in downtown. And so it's got that flavor of, you know, you asked about an HOA, kind of a cross between an HOA and a chamber of commerce, right? And so we really, it's not just a, it's not just a nice civic thing. It's also core to how business and property can be successful in, in a downtown. Okay. And last kind of like setup question is how would you describe the relationship of the partnership between the different members and local city government and different organizations within downtown? How Can you just kind of describe that nexus of all those, how those groups interact? Yeah, it's, it's kind of multi-layered and there's no maybe one single descriptor. For example, with the city, we work closest with the city because the areas that we're working on are, are within the city's general government purview and they provide services that are the most place-based, whether that's parks, event sponsorship, policing, et cetera. Some of the more programmatic stuff involves the county and we're in conversations with uh, public health and and especially behavioral health about issues that the county's funded to address, that the county has programs to address. Uh, it tends to be more programmatic though, and less specifically place-based. So we have conversations in like all the all the departments <laughs> of the city and and by and large the county. And then we have in our on our board, we have some designated representation, two city seats and a county seat. And it, 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 it's because of the importance of those relationships and also because those agencies are actually the largest property owners in the district. So it recognizes that they've got a special stake. Okay. And what role does the board serve in your organization? I've recently been doing a lot of kind of research on the efficacy of nonprofit boards and what makes them more or less successful. So yeah. how would you describe the board's role in your organization? Well, like a lot of boards, they are fiduciaries of the organization. So, you know, big, big decisions. We just had our board meeting last week and adopted a budget for next year. And obviously there are a lot of choices, trade-offs, priorities that get reflected in a budget. So that's a really important sort of board 
check-in and checkpoint. We've had, gosh, you know, just I think I, I think what's important for our board is that the organization does a lot from day to day, week to week. A lot of the services that we provide that are funded by the PBIN. And there's also a larger, there are larger questions that I think we're situated to help answer, larger needs that require property owners working together. And so exactly how we sort of grow into that, the growth path of an organization is certainly something that the board has stewardship of. And that's true in our case. Okay. Can you talk about a little bit about some of the opportunities and challenges with PPPs? I think a lot of people tend to see them as uh, only beneficial. It's great if public and private partnerships can exist, but there's also a lot of challenges once the government gets involved. Can you talk about that from your perspective? Yeah, I mean it's a it's a real close relationship that we've got. It's 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 symbiotic, really, two directional, and we we do our best to stay in coordination with each other, and and that just makes sense because obviously there's operations that the city has generally that need to come into downtown, and then there are some things that need a little bit more of the the private on the ground. Well, those are two different things, private sector leadership that needs to be organized or on the ground presence, expertise, day-to-day consistent attention. And that tends to be more like us, right? So, but I tell you, every every department, we've got some important line of work. And, and then with the city manager's office, mayor's office, helping coordinate things, we're in touch more than weekly. I mean- okay. Okay. All right. We're going to jump into some more specific downtown topics. Some of these will make sense and some of them will come out of left field, which is always my favorite. Why is signage such an important agenda item for the partnership? Signage. Well, so we, gosh, there's lots of, lots of ways I can go on that question. So fire away. (laughs) So one thing that's interesting is obviously in the 20 years I've been off and on connected to downtown work, the way we get information has changed, right? So the way we share information also needs to change. And certainly my team is second to none in terms of social media presence and strategy and, and getting in front of people and, and the amount of interaction that happens with the stories that we're able to tell and the, and the marketing that we do for downtown. And then, but, but we also know there are places where, you know, thousands, tens of thousands of people are passing every day. And so we don't necessarily, sometimes we lose that when we think about how, how communication is changing. But the fact are, the fact is that people's eyes are still in places. And so we don't necessarily, we have great ways on social media of spreading the word, but what we want to be able to do is make sure that Folks who are already part of our downtown community are getting the the first word about um, events that are coming up and that we really are grounded in the community of folks in downtown Fresno today. So we we sort of miss the opportunity to just have messaging right where people are when they're already downtown. Okay. What what if what physical signage would improve downtown? Well, one of the things that's there's multiple things. One of the things that is in the adopted city plan for downtown is to have poles on either side of the street that allow for banners to be Mm. over the street. And you've seen those in other cities. Um, It requires a pole that's able to handle a heavier load with wind and whatever else. So, and it requires money to buy and install such poles. So that's something that we've brought up. And, And then at the same time, there's conversation about how do we really effectively communicate when different pricing is happening at parking garages, for example. Sometimes there's event pricing and people don't necessarily know when that's coming. And I think we've got an opportunity to use curb curbside signage to maybe have a QR code. So it's, it's tech enabled, but it connects people to live time updates connecting to, you know, in place. Let's talk about parking meters. Should they be operating seven days a week, you think? 
No, probably not. I mean, in general, in general, where we ought to be is that we strive for a capacity or an occupancy target with our downtown parking resources. And that could be street meters, that could be off-street garage and lot space. The kind of rule of thumb that economists have come up with is, but so if you have 85% occupancy or so, that means that on a block of street parking spaces, you've got one available pretty much any time. So you've priced it just right where if somebody has a different choice, they're going to choose it. Okay. But if you need the street space, it's going to be there for you. And what are the general rules? Because sometimes I'll be downtown on the weekend and I'll think there's some event going on and I'll assume that there's some kind of, you know, that the meters are on, but they're not. Do you think that's the system is enforced consistently or do you think it's just kind of, you know, yeah. it's how do you define an event or a, a time yeah. in which they should be on? Yeah. I mean, the reality is, you know, enforcement could happen anytime that the meters say that parking's enforced. And now we have meters that are able to carry it down to the minute message about what's supposed to be, that's still fairly new. So I know even just in the last few months, the city's been trying to make sure that's that communication is correct and effective and up to the up to date. And is, isn't it doesn't I mean, always mean that somebody's ticketing every right, time, right. right? So that's the part you're pointing to perhaps is you don't know. But yeah. You gotta anticipate it. Yeah, because I mean that hard. I mean, if you're if you're thinking about the the Cass Sunstein model of nudging people, if things are enforced inconsistently, then yeah. that what what kind of behavior is that going to elicit? I mean, I remember when I lived in San Francisco, and I would avoid driving downtown because I had so many parking tickets. Just yeah. just parking down there, but incentivize me to use public transit. But you know, there isn't you know there is right. public transit here, but it's not in not the same level of public transit. So what are what yeah. what is our end goal with with metering, especially because because we're not hitting, we're not probably close to those thresholds that you're describing of like that's occupancy right. downtown. Yeah. And I think that's kind of the key fact is, and and we'll be doing some, you know, we'll be engaged with the city and, and advocating as appropriate as the city does some work uh, soon here with a consultant to recommend changes to their master fee schedule. There are a number of things that I would say don't make sense about parking that are kind of enshrined in the master fee schedule currently. Um, for example, there is no price band where the price can vary from quarter to quarter, month to month, hour to hour. I mean, at no scale can it can it be varied to always be trying to meet that 85% or so occupancy target. That that concept's just not reflected in the law right now. Okay. And then also in terms of geography, I mean, not all facilities have the same demand average or at any given time. So we don't, we have one price in the master fee schedule for any garage or lot, but they don't all experience the same amount of demand and it, and it doesn't follow that they all have the same price. Okay. Now does Fresno PD have enough resources to properly police downtown? I would say so. Do that, and, and that's an answer that is that is an answer that uh, anticipates that we're going to see an additional second unit of the Metro Bike Team, which I've heard is going to be the case in the new year soon. That's going to be important because we've we certainly have had folks experience shoplifting, and I think that's not unique to retail. Unfortunately, these days, what we've needed, and I think this new team is part of that picture, is more of a, a presence. Um, the team that we've had so often gets waylaid with, you know, if, if if they have somebody who's causing a problem, they have to book that person. That can that can tie up a couple hours of cop time. And when that happens, there's nobody out patrolling and kind of providing the deterrent uh, effect. And so, yeah. So what? And I was just talking to our new captain in this district yesterday. And feeling very positive about, you know, his his goal is with these additional resources coming in that uh, they're going to be able to be places that are really impactful, whether that's day to day and deterrent and a feeling of safety that people have when they're customers or if it's planning ahead for special events and making sure that the policing at an event is staffed 
first and foremost with folks who are on that beat anyway and know some of the maybe frequent flyers or uh, you know know some of the business owners or people in the community and and are really more effective that way so it's you know we're things are on the way up i would say in terms of our policing and it's a good relationship that we've got going yeah. in one of the things I've heard that is difficult with uh, bicycle police officers is just making sure that they properly canvass their entire area that they're responsible for. You know, I mean, it's a, you know, it's, if you're a, you're constantly moving, if you're on a bicycle, how many, how many bicycle police officers do you think downtown needs? Well, I, uh, we're talking about a, a basically a doubling and I think that's going to be real appropriate. I would probably push back a little bit because just in my own experience, you know, we've had, for example, somebody sort of encamped in front of a business and I was headed out there myself to go try and address the situation and passed some bike officers and said, hey, I'm headed up here. We got an issue. Can you meet me at X business? And they did that. And they it was good that they did because they they were effective in addressing the situation beyond what I would have been able to do. And I don't think, you know, with just relying on cars. I would have had to flag an officer down, maybe yeah. driving past at a higher speed. So there really is some something very important about a bike and even foot beats. You can be much more attentive, responsive. And I think any of us, if you've you know had the experience walking through an area, biking through an area versus driving through it, how much richer, how much more you see mm -hmm. when you're biking or walking through a place. And now think about applying that to policing. You know, absolutely. Is Chuck Chancy Park too big? Well, no, it turns out. So we we thought for a long time that it was. And certainly baseball nights, I mean, there's actually got the numbers the other day and the attendance is pretty strong. It's doesn't fill all of the seats most of the nights. But then we have more and more of the non-baseball events. And there's been some coverage recently about how that's kind of changed the story in terms of the profitability of the team. And Gosh, the rest of us downtown around the stadium can certainly see when there's a big event and some of those bring in 15, 20,000 people. What and kind of events could they use that maybe they aren't currently doing to bring more attention to the park? Well, we, just taking a cue from what's been working, more concerts, you know, is uh, clearly there's a there's an excitement and a demand. And then, I, you know, we've had soccer in different facets. And I don't know if it's that facility or otherwise, I just know that there's a lot of community support and involvement with soccer and that there's a real demand for a facility. So, so that's part of the answer. And I think, you know, there's been some great creativity about reusing some of the sections of the stadium for the splash park or the party deck. And I think those, those kinds of inve investments in the facility are really smart. There's Probably more that could be done as we see activation out of the Fulton side gate immediately surrounding the stadium. It probably won't make sense over time to kind of invest in that connection because it creates a natural flow. It does make me sad that we have a single A baseball team. I enjoyed <laughs> having a, a a little higher level of not that not that those guys out there playing baseball aren't great, but you can yeah. you can feel a little bit of a difference here when you move sure. between the A's. So yeah, sure. Um, I don't, well, I, don't I was know if that's I was, ever going to come back or not. I don't know. Well, I was heartened to see the comments from the uh, new ownership at the city council the other day where basically, you know, they were saying this is a this is a triple A market. This is a triple A management team and it's it's a triple A stadium. So from their perspective, and, and now what we have is ownership that has a, a tremendous amount of clout with the major leagues in a way that we haven't seen before. And I know I I read in the article the the observation that, you know, with the A's moving to Las Vegas, Las Vegas has had a triple A team. That team may not have a home anymore. And it, the league is always minor leagues are always changing, right? So we we got our original AAA team from who was it the Tucson Toros I think or the Albuquerque Isotopes or something. So the <laughs> nothing's ever permanent. Is that a real team name, the Albuquerque Isotopes? Yeah. <laughs> wow, that's amazing. We'll yeah. come back to physics in a little bit. Um, <laughs> 
Do you think the solution to professional soccer in Fresno is a new stadium for them that's indoors, or do you think the solution is improving Chuck Chancey Park to make it make more sense for soccer as well? Well, I say I know that our community is all about soccer. I'm not a soccer expert myself, yeah. so I couldn't tell you. I think that, I mean, anytime I see big soccer in Latin America, it seems like it's mostly outdoors in, in arenas, so fair my, enough. My sense is, yeah, we could probably cover most of what we need with an outdoor facility. When it comes to maintenance downtown, what's the typical turnaround for city maintenance requests? And does that, is that, how does that compare with other mid-level cities of our size? Well, it depends on the issue. But in most cases, like if we have a graffiti call, we and others are really good about putting those into the Fresco app. And we'll see same-day turnaround. Really? Oh, yeah. Wow. That could also be true if there's, yeah, you know, an issue with, you know, cleanup and especially with the city hiring ambassadors through the Youth Job Corps program. You know, if we get a call about maybe there's some litter in an alley, I mean, often often we will respond to that. And that's definitely a same day. But also the city's got, you know, dozens, depending on the shift, dozens of Youth Job Corps ambassadors and they are responding as well. So, yeah. Okay. And I, I would put that up against any city. Last one before we jump to overrated versus underrated. How, how do we avoid kind of the hot potato problem of the homeless in Fresno? I lived in Southern California for a long time and would see the kind of like, let's push them all to this place downtown and concentrate them and can we know what happens when, when when we do that but at the same time just kind of shifting them from place to place doesn't really make sense either and then some some will pursue help and some just won't so how do you think about how we should conceptualize the homeless problem downtown well the big answer part of the answer that looks like a solution is that we've got more places for folks to go and you know, that comes up in my conversations with city, county. It's what we're all up against as a community, is that we need to have the the emergency housing available to point people towards and that they're able to stay there for enough time to, you know, let their addiction, if that's the issue, get itself under control, get stable and clean and not just get, you know, revolving door back out. Because I know that there's been a lot of, since that book came out, San Francisco, there's been a lot of conversations about, you know, kind of how cities approach the homeless issue. And I think it's much more nuanced than he was suggesting in that book and much more complicated, having lived in San Francisco and lived in the parts of the city that he was describing. But I do think that there needs to be some kind of more moderate position between, you know, kind of complete allowance of people to live their lives. And then obviously the alternative, which I hear a lot of feedback from, which is a lot of these nonprofits will have religious requirements for you using being in their facilities or, or certain things that make it to where it's not as welcoming for certain people that don't have certain cultural ties or backgrounds and religion. And so I, I do think it is a problem uh, that we haven't quite figured out. Uh, what, yeah. what would be your response? Well, I think you're right in the sense that it's not only, it's not as if we build emergency housing, which we desperately need, and we build it and they will come. There are other parts of the equation, such as relationships, you know, and a steady to build a relationship with somebody who then has the trust to follow you down a different path implies a consistency, implies a rapport. And so I do think there's a role that organizations like ours play who have a daily presence in an area who are naturally empathetic, but non-denominational, you know, can play in getting to know the folks who are struggling on the street and and, and ensure that when there are options that we've got the ability to embark on a conversation and and encourage a different you know different choices behavior choices that folks you know make for themselves okay. so yeah yeah and and in terms of priorities for your constituents downtown uh, how do businesses think about uh, the homeless issue downtown we're kind of talking politically here but how do the how do local businesses think about it yeah no it's a it's a, a daily challenge. And depending on the property or the business properties that have 
more accessible alcoves are dealing with people daily, sometimes with the starts of encampments daily. And we're talking in, you know, late December and with colder weather, rain, it's even more. And that can be a challenge if, you know, you've got paying tenants who are coming through those spaces. So it is a top, it's a, it's a top thing that with any property owner I'm talking about, or they're bringing up with me. Okay. All right. Our next section is called overrated versus underrated. I'm going to throw a bunch of things at you. Physics, books, people. You tell me whether you think they're over or underrated. Some of these will be either ors as well. Okay. Uh, all right. So the first one is Christmas tree lane, over or underrated. Well, it's so highly rated, but appropriately. It's appropriately related. Okay. I mean, how many hundred year institutions do we have in this community, this valley? And so the longevity kind of instantiates it as a properly rated staying place. power. It's it's free, you know, like that's pretty cool. And the sense, the the eyes full of wonder when you bring kids down Christmas tree lane is pretty special. Yeah, I've been to some other cities that have a purported Christmas tree lane. It isn't quite to the up to the Fresno standards. And so when I describe that Fresno has an incredible Christmas tree lane, there's almost a disbelief like Fresno. And I was like, you just have to see it. You know, Fresno is a big, complex place. All right. Next one's an either or. Richard Feynman or Stephen Hawking? I don't know. I don't know any physics anymore. I don't even know how much physics I've forgotten. (laughs) Who are my choices? Feynman and Hawking? Yeah. Jeez, I don't know. I'll I'll say, I I don't know. I'll say Feynman. Okay. Yeah, I, I like him. He's a little more fun. All right, next one. Nano loans over or underrated? Underrated. Underrated. Okay. So okay, why? Yeah. So I'm I'm just ending my board service at Access Plus Capital. And with some grant support, we were able to start doing nano loans. It's funny because that started around the pandemic. And then the pandemic came in with all kinds of free money. And so we didn't see any nano loans happen much for a couple of years. And um why do you need a separate designation? Are they just really small microloans or why is, the, why is the designation? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I don't know globally if that's a term of art, but at Access Plus Capital, what it means is that that's a five to $20,000 loan and the underwriting procedures involve, let's see, I think I'm going to get this wrong, but like pulling your tax records, but not your bank statements, or maybe it's the other way around, okay. kind of a more accelerated okay. a few less underwriting hoops. process. Yeah. Okay. So, gotcha. and yeah, under, under, underrated. I mean, we, we are a capital desert in the Valley. There was a study that showed that Fresno had an unmet need of $3 billion a year in small business capital. And a lot of our folks, you know, as a region with a lot of poverty, folks are coming out of circumstances that have led to bad credit histories. And often you find hustle. I mean, not always, of course, but often you find folks who are actively working their way up and out and that credit history can follow you for a long time. So nano loans that are able to take risk. What what we've actually found though at Access Plus Capital in these last couple of years, sort of post pandemic and doing more of them is that the default rate is no greater despite the, the relaxed underwriting. And it's because, yeah, it's, it's people who are on a, on a path of hustle, getting their, getting themselves going and getting themselves going and there's a level of engagement. So it's not just here's some money and goodbye. It's working with folks to help them be successful as well. Yeah, I think it's a great thing because I mean, what else fills the space? So, you know, title loans, yeah. auto loans, credit card debt, you know, all yeah. these things that just have onerous implications for your future. And so I think it's I think it's a wonderful thing. Next one, the dancing waters fountain. Yes. Well I would say it's it's not overrated. If anything, it's underrated, I suppose. Um, okay. I, think, I, I don't I'll really understand it. So, so tell me. You don't understand it? it? Yeah. Well, the, the, I'll, I'll tell you this. Here would be my answer. The rebuilt Dancing Waters Fountain is underrated. Oh. Because, um, you know, where it is now is not where it used to be. I didn't know that. And as part of the street project, Fulton Street Project, about a quarter of the budget was uh, art restoration and fountains, actually. People don't always know that. And, and the rebuilding of Dancing Waters was probably the one of the biggest single projects just because it moved that fountain three blocks down and enlarged it so that there wouldn't be as much overspray. And I think where it is now, so people who are purists, you know, regret that it had to move. But if you came today, you would see this interesting fountain that's right at the gate of the stadium. And I think it has a, a due place of prominence. 
Yeah. I think people don't appreciate how much sculpture is downtown. There yeah. are sculptures everywhere, all across downtown. And it's a wonderful thing that sometimes I kind of pass them by and I I don't fully appreciate them. All right. Yeah. Next one. The place Peeves that's no longer with us. Was that over or underrated? <laughs> Over or underrated? Neither one. It was. It was. It was kind of like a Christmas tree lane. <laughs> yeah. 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 Properly, suitably loved. Yeah, it's kind of sad. I. I. It was one of the first places when I moved here that I. I went to to to, you know, see what downtown was like, and I remember watching some soccer games down there. And totally. uh, now I definitely miss it. We have lots of options, but. You know, yeah, it was not, a special place field. of community, and I know, like for me, it was bringing people from out of town who were here trying to help work on Fresno or funding Fresno or, you know, bringing, bringing those kind of folks into a place like Peace, they really saw that there was community ready for, for change, for investment, for good, good things to happen. Okay. Next one's another one leaning into your physics background, but feel free to pass uh, the movie Oppenheimer. Yeah. Are you going to give me a versus on this one? Uh, <laughs> yeah, no, 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 no. Yeah. Uh, did you like the movie? I, I don't, I actually don't watch a lot of movies, but I have seen Oppenheimer and I thought it was, I thought it was great. Okay. Oppenheimer versus Barbie, I guess. Yeah. Versus, and I haven't seen Barbie. So. Okay. <laughs> okay. All right. Next one. Legalizing street vending. Yeah. I mean, definitely complicated. So I don't know. I don't know. How would yeah, you maybe the designation that? overrated versus underrated doesn't matter, yeah. but is it a, is it a good thing to legalize street vending? I think it's, it's good to encourage it. And then the term legalizing is where you get into the nuance, right? Like we want to promote it, but things that are legal aren't necessarily unfettered. So I think we're still working out like what's the best way to encourage micro entrepreneurship and serve people uh, where they are, but also be able to make sure there's not trash, make sure there's not, you know, make sure that there's that storefronts aren't, aren't blocked, that they're accessible. Uh, just a number of things that come in. Are, have we learned any lessons from Los Angeles's approach to it? They've kind of been more aggressively promoting street vending and decriminalization. I, it's a good question. I would love to know more about what they're doing. Okay. Next one, bike lending programs. Well, if we include in that category bike share systems, I would say... Well, I would say underrated in your dichotomy, and I'm encouraged that we've got a system in development, and I think that we've got a role to play in helping that be successful. Very specifically, I'll say for downtown, we, A, have more tourist traffic than I think people really understand, because in this town, none of us are tourists, right? So we don't we don't see it necessarily, but certainly if I'm downtown on a you know, Saturday morning, I'm likely to hear some language I've never heard before. And that's kind of new to people to think about as Fresnans. But, and so those folks are looking for ways to get around. And then the other thing is that we've built up downtown to where we've got thousands of jobs out of walking distance of the small businesses, the historic buildings, the density. And we've kind of done that to ourselves, of course, but Wheels, shared wheels, I'll put it that way, are really have the potential to help shrink downtown to where we have a lot more options accessible to folks who are in those job centers, be that a courthouse, hospital, city hall, whatever it is. Okay. A couple more on this uh, before we change gears. Uh, me and Ed's Pizza. Mm. Well, yeah, there's mixed there's mixed opinions, right? I'm, I'm, I'm hot for me and Ed's. Okay. Like so it's, so it's underrated for you. It's underrated. Yes. The okay. haters are underrated. Yeah. What, what do the haters not understand? I don't know. Cause what I hear is... the crust is often used as the scapegoat, but I, it does, the crust doesn't, it doesn't bother me. I enjoy the crust. See, I can, I'm, my wife and I are polar opposites on this. She's like, give me the thinnest possible. And so I think the thing she doesn't like about me and Ed's is there's too much crust. Mm. And then I I can love me a good Chicago deep dish. And mm. on that you, scale, you had my follow up right there because I was going to ask while you were at University of Chicago whether you fell in love with deep dish. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you can you have to ration yourself because you'll 
he'll double in size. But <laughs> I had a friend that lived next door to me in an apartment in Southern California, and he was from Chicago. His family would mail him a deep dish pizza, and it would always <laughs> arrive frozen. And then it would he would just like like set aside his calendar. Yeah. And he would bake that and we'd all sit down and eat it. It was, it was a wonderful thing. And all right, next one, two more free bus fare. Well, so this is a tricky one. Yeah, it's interesting. I think that, well, I don't know how it's rated. What I know about what I know, I'll say this, what I know as a bus rider and then as a, as an observer of how folks use transit is I think the biggest need that we have is for a better system and not for a free system. Mm. I think people are willing to pay a little bit, like a buck, for a system that's really good. So if you tell me that we can do free and better, okay, then I like free. If you tell me that we need to not be free because we need to leverage the fare box revenue with federal dollars so that we can build a more robust system, then I'm not so much for free. Yeah, yeah. No, I know. It's... it's... I think it's easier. It's an easier sell to do free without making huge capital investments to improve the system. And so it can be considered a win without giving people those marginal gains by having a better system in place. Yeah. All right. Next one is gentrification. Are the negative impacts overstated? Yeah, another downtown? one. That, say again? Sorry, as it relates to downtown. Are the negative yeah. impacts overstated? Yeah, I think, I mean, so I would tell you this. I would say that we've had... We had decades of white flight and we've had generations of presidents whose families have been part of that story. And so, and, and now we have, you know, a, a hope that we rebalance growth outward with some growth inward. And I think that it's, it's a little bit difficult for me to get upset about sprawl and white flight and then simultaneously be upset about reversing disinvestment and reversing uh, and rebalancing with inward growth and think that that's the problem. Uh, yeah. Those things kind of conflict, don't they? Those you know, things kind of conflict. You can't, yeah. you can't be against sprawl and then also be against gentrification. It seems like they're, yeah. I don't know. I it's hard people, to describe to people. I think people kind of duck, duck that a little bit and um, allow for that inconsistency to fester. <laughs> so I would tell you that Here's the way I see it, though, is that I'm actually all for, and I think our organization is just kind of naturally all for investment. And I think that downtown can be an intentional place of change. So it's not that we want, you know, things to be better, but not change. We actually want to, we want to be a, a place that's growing and, and evolving. And as we go through that process, we want to create opportunities for as many people as possible to participate and benefit. So yeah. that where you have to be intentional is not, and I think the, the the real key is that we're not trying to shield people from the economy. We're trying to bring people into the economy. And so that means that we've got to have ways for folks who may have a lower wealth background or they don't have a history of developing. We're creating ways for folks to get into a first project. We've got a couple examples, but kind of the general point is, and we were kind of talking about nano loans before. One of the conversations I've brought a little bit to Access Plus, and of course now I'm leaving that board, but it's still, it's still a question, is how do we encourage folks to be entrepreneurs in real estate? So we've had, you, you, you see small business programs and you want to find folks who are entrepreneuring their way out of poverty. And the focus is all on who's doing the, the, the producing and the selling. And then you have housing conversations and the focus there about affordability is all about who's doing the consuming basically. But for some reason, we never sort of see that uh, we're missing the small business question about development, which is who's doing the developing. And I'm 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 almost more passionate about who's doing the developing than I am about who's doing the occupying the <laughs> mm -hmm. the renting, because I'd love for you know a small business owner who's struggled and found their way to buy a building to then be able to develop the upper floor, 
And if they can develop that with market rate units and let their mom retire, you know, kind of situation and have an intergenerational change in their family wealth or lack thereof previously, I think that's a hugely great outcome driven by market rate housing, you know? So we got to be real intentional, I think, about, about that. And that's actually a, that is a uh, session I've proposed for the California Downtown Association Conference in February that they've accepted. So I'm actually in the process of putting a panel together right now to talk about. It sounds great. I'd love to sit in. Last one on this subject, strip malls. I don't know if we know this, but the Fulton Mall was kind of created by the originator of strip malls, who is from, I think, Bavaria of all places or, or somewhere in Germany. Are, are strip malls over or underrated? Yeah, I think he's Austrian, Victor Grun. Yeah. Um, so over or underrated? Well, I guess over. Over because, yeah, people pay rent there and shop at, at them. But, you know, from a economic perspective, like the the externalities that they produce driving more vehicle trips aren't really costed in. And um, kind of so like that book, paved, paved Paradise, that just came out. Uh, yeah, out you were going to. I think you were going to ask me about books and you just you just took my answer. Oh, sorry no about reason. that. Yeah, no, no it's reason. a good one. We can come back to it. Yeah. yeah. So it so it's it, I mean it it works, right? You know, they, there's a reason why they're everywhere. There there's the utility of them makes sense, but for you they're overrated because there's a lot of waste involved. Yeah. Okay. That's and right. that makes that makes sense to me. All right. A few more questions before we wrap up. Sorry, I'm just getting my I'm going to cut this part. I'm just getting my outline re, reconfigured here. Should we have more or less noise ordinances downtown? That's one I haven't thought about in a while. Well, we've, I actually have to go back and do research on what we've got in place right now. So let's say you got an apartment building and across the street, there's a bar that's open till two and mm-hmm. they've got music going. And then you got neighbors complaining. Obviously, if you live in, you know, Greenwich Village, you just kind of expect that. But maybe if you're living in downtown Fresno, you might assume that it'll be quiet after midnight. Yeah, I I guess my answer is, uh, you're asking about downtown areas generally. I would say if you are moving into those areas, you know what you're in for and it kind of comes with the territory. Okay. So if it's a, a questions about downtown Fresno, then definitely we don't need more noise ordinances because the fact that I don't even remember what our current, we don't have, we don't have enough of the kind of conflicts you would expect in a, a vibrant downtown. Why is it a good idea to market downtown as a whole? Shouldn't we just market specific things? Like sub districts, yeah. So people market the brewery district a lot, or different things like yeah. that. Or why, yeah. what, what, how, how, how do you market? I mean, marketing a downtown is kind of like marketing something that's a collection of things, right? Yes, that's right. And actually, we're embracing that more next year. Um, so we're gonna kind of take the Fulton Street Party and we're gonna make it five events that are block parties, and really embrace the fact that yeah, there's. There's a different character and there's a different group of people and businesses who are in different blocks. And and we want to encourage folks in, in each of those places to be more able to have music that brings people in inside doors. And we want to really encourage the public to feel that connection to the businesses and it not be such a big area that the only way to be seen is to be out as a vendor on the sidewalk, we want to actually take it down a little bit and scale and make make it small enough to where you attending the event can feel that connection to all of the businesses that are involved in a, in one you know visit. So and 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 doing that kind of embracing the more of the character of let's say Warner's Corner versus the gallery row on Mono versus the brewery district versus the Galleria versus on Fulton Street. I have a friend that lives uh, a block and a half from Community Hospital. His home is a historic home. And I don't know how many months he waited to see if he could repaint the chipped paint on the front of his house. Does historical preservation get in the way of downtown development? I would say that it's it's important because, well, we've certainly lost a lot of buildings that, you know, convey our history and too easily, you know, in the past. Has it been possible to just knock things down on spec? So, but on the other hand, I I am definitely one who feels like you know the best thing that we can do for our history in downtown is to 
make sure that it's living, you know? So when, when we need to adapt, we can adapt, but still maintain some of the connection to the past. It's just, things aren't in, aren't, aren't in wax. You know, it's not, it's not preservation without change. Yeah. So we don't want to be Robert Moses, but we also can't be Jane Jacobs. We got to be somewhere, you know, kind of with those two, you know, progress, quote unquote, but also yeah. allowing yeah, I people think, to determine what's important. Yeah. And I'm, I'm not a, you know, I'm not a, un, not a, a, you know, in either direction, right? Like even Jacobs, I mean, the kind of the, the paradigm for her was this wonderful, you know, very mixed, lively sidewalk environment, which is great in that context, like how do you keep housing affordable when population is increasing? You know, if, if you're not building more supply of housing right in the heart of things, then you're sprawling. And that's kind of what we've done. So I, you know, I'm, I'm not for, I'm not for a, a, an interpretation of Jacobs that then leads to outward growth and, you know, keeping housing housing affordable by building tens of thousands of units that are only car accessible far away, and you know, so yeah, so I think that we've, you know, and and fortunately there are good ways to adapt under the you know Secretary of Interior's guidelines and so forth, uh, but we just have to be have to be ready for it. Just a couple more questions uh, before we wrap up: Should Tower District be part of downtown or not? Oh, no, I mean, you know, having just come off your last question or two about districts, you know, yeah, not only not only is downtown distinct from the Tower District, which is a great neighborhood commercial core, but, you know, even within downtown, we need to be smarter about how we recognize. Yeah, absolutely. It, it's its own place. It is interesting to think about, you know, lines and separations and what, what goes with what. And that's kind of where I was getting at with that question. So let's make a, I'm going to give you a chance to make a pitch, make a pitch to someone that lives in Northeast Fresno, rarely goes out of their neighborhood, shops at their Vons down the street, you know, maybe goes to River Park when it goes, when they go to the mall or something, make, make a pitch to them as to why they should care about what happens downtown. Yeah. So I would say, you know, if they're not, first of all, I'll say if they're not drawn to downtown, then maybe it's not for you today. But as you start hearing about how much fun people are having, the pitch will make itself. And I would also say that, you know, as a taxpayer, you know, what does that mean for me? Well, think about the future of the valley that we're trying to create, which ultimately affects all of us who live here. And we're in a world that's got changing climate and we need to be more climate ready and so when you think about downtown, you're thinking about a place that's got transportation choices that people can walk to places and it's just inherently more climate resilient than just about any other place that we have in the Valley. It's really the leader in the model for what more of the Valley will need to look like when we're being aggressive about um, adapting to a climate changing world. Also think about this, what we were talking about as a place of change in our downtown and think about the vast amount of concentrated poverty that we have and really the lack of economic mobility that we have people born into poverty have real trouble here getting out and as all of us whether we're on one side of that fence or the other are affected by having large amounts of our population trapped in poverty and so it's important for the future of our economy that we have a mix of incomes. Uh, we have uh, opportunities to develop new businesses, prosper, be part of investment and change. Okay. And then I would say that downtown has a unique role and downtown plays a part in that story. And downtown has a unique role to play when we think about the region's economy and how it becomes more dynamic, how we grow from a region that's got agricultural exports, which don't produce a lot of shared prosperity through large amounts of the population, but are very much tied up with our identity, of course. But we want to transition into sectors where we're exporting knowledge products and businesses are exporting ideas, you know, that 
that become products and businesses. And, and for a, an idea to become a product or a business requires a social interaction. And so downtown kind of is that natural place. Downtowns are those natural places. And so there's a real sense in which we need downtown to help deliver the kind of valley economy that we need in the future. And on that note specifically, a few episodes ago, we had Reese Tebow on, who's a, a reporter at the Washington Post, to talk about kind of the the fallout from the Bitwise collapse. What kind of impact do you see that having on downtown, the loss of Bitwise? Not a huge one, as some might expect. There are just a number of silver linings to the cloud. And we've got other players who are entering the workforce training space who have different models that seem to be making sense. We've got really responsible ownership of the buildings that were involved, and we've got more tenants coming in than leaving. And so that's a good thing for downtown and certainly for those buildings. And then the kind of the ethereal, you know, leadership or, or connectivity among the tech sector and identity, that's where I've had conversations with really senior tech people who are excited to come together and do stuff with Bitwise out of the picture because they felt like Bitwise had become more of a consumer of talent than a creator and an exporter. And now they feel more empowered to do stuff. So that's a silver lining. And I think just the basic reality is that um, Bitwise was in downtowns because downtowns are these places where innovators can go to find community. And it wasn't the other way around. Downtowns weren't that because Bitwise came to town. Let's say I gave you the power to control a giant crane where you could pick up three businesses that exist somewhere else in Fresno and plop them right into downtown that would make the most sense and give the most benefit to downtown community. What what are three businesses that you think downtown Fresno needs that maybe exist somewhere else in the city but don't currently exist there? Well, what we have that's a real asset in the region and the community is that we have some, some really successful restaurateurs, right? We have families who've got roots, maybe in other industries and younger folks, you know, my age, your age are, have a, you know, a string of different brands or concepts. We talked about the Smith camps before and made, but that's just part of a larger family, right? With heirloom and butterfish and Saison. And so just that one, just that one example, not to mention some of our other restaurateurs, Fanzler or or Hardini, you know, people being creative uh, with with um, what they have. So I think that there's a there's an opportunity, and I I know not from direct conversation recently, but you, you know, it's like, is any one of them going to plant a big flag downtown on their own? It seems like that's been a no. But if the question is, if we got, you know, half a dozen of these kinds of places that are really unique and local and 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 establish them together in, in combination with businesses that we already have downtown, but really creating something new together, it feels like that's that would be really special. That would be de-risked from their perspective, because you're you're not the only draw, you're you're part of this anchor thing together. And I so I would, so my answer to your question is I would bring some of the, yeah, innovative restaurant concepts into proximity together in downtown. Okay. Last question before books. Do you think to be in a leader in Fresno, you need to be bilingual? <laughs> Yo no sé, señor. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So should, should that be a requirement for maybe public office in Fresno that you speak both languages or potentially more? Yeah. Well, I don't know. You're asking me as a president or as an American? <laughs> yeah, probably both a little bit. Yeah. It's it's so wild to come back to the U.S. when you go somewhere else and so many people speak English usually as their second language. You know, I know some some folks well who are active downtown and they are from the Middle East, let's say, and they, yeah, they speak six languages, you know, but only Casually. four. And yeah. it's, I think that, yeah, I don't know if it's a requirement. A hope, an aspiration. You it's know? an aspiration. For me... Like, I just think that it's, you could be very self-interested about it. I mean, I, I, I don't know, I don't speak Spanish fluently out of, out of self-interest exactly, but it's been so beneficial to be able to speak across different lines. And I don't know why anyone wouldn't want to do that. Yeah, no, I was, I was doing some reading on some, you know, 
language acquisition. And a lot of the myths that we have about adult learners learning a second language are just really kind of attribution errors. It's more just the correlation with you stop taking language classes when you graduate high school. But right? as but as an adult, you can you can learn a language. I mean, it, it takes work, but I really do think it's a it's a character trait thing. It really comes yeah. down to do you want to put yourself out there and be uncomfortable and experience what it's like to be someone right. in a country where you know you don't speak the most commonly spoken language. And so I I think you know I have passable Spanish, but I I'm embarrassed when I'm ordering food and then they start speaking so fast I can't keep up. <laughs> but I think really what it is is just willing a willingness to put yourself out there. Yeah. Um, did you learn Spanish as an adult or as a as a child? Both. Yeah. Okay. Okay. What what advice would you give to someone that maybe wants to finally pick it up? Well, the the difficulty, the challenge is what you just described in your situation. You're popping into Spanish when it comes time to order some food at a restaurant, but you need to be immersed, you know, and and anybody would to really learn it. So you know, there's no substitute for engaging socially with folks who are maybe outside your comfort zone or maybe not in your neighborhood, you got to find a way to have to speak in different situations. And, you know, that might be travel. That might be spending some time in different neighborhoods. It's yeah. going to mean being uncomfortable for sure. Yeah. I enjoy uh, putting on some Spanish language children's TV, but that's a whole different subject. Yeah, All actually right. that's, yeah. Yeah, TV is TV is a great place to start. It, it works. It works. Yeah. All right. Uh, to close, what are three books you'd recommend to listeners? Oh my gosh. Let's see. I should have prepared for this part. Well, you, why don't you talk about Paved Paradise? Because we mentioned it, but I'd rather I'd I'd hear I'd love to hear your take on the book. Yeah. So I I bought a copy for her team. <laughs> I just so many so much of it really resonates as true. Yeah, it's pretty self evident when you see the stories presented. You know, great writing and research, but. I try to impress on people even today. I guess that's what's so important and compelling is that even today, people don't really understand how parking drives the conversation. And I've I've been really intentional about uh, bringing up and not shrinking from the fact that the state infrastructure money is going to have to include some funding for parking garages. Because, and it's, I mean, I'm, I'm a bus rider and a bike rider and I'm an outlier in both of those, but not blind to the fact that we do have cars, you know, in our market. And if we want to see dramatic transformation from prior downtown housing development, and let's say we want to cut the cars in half, that's still going to mean half a stall per unit. So if we want to have a block with 500 housing units, that's still 250 cars, yeah. even with an aggressive assumption. So the question is, and this is where people don't, they just don't think about it this way, but it's like, do you want to house those cars in a garage or do you want to house them on surface parking? And if you look at places with garages, this is kind of to the books, maybe logic, you know, is is you find garages in places that are more transit dependent and walking dependent because you're requiring those cars to not take up as much real estate. And you know, if you think about the map of San Francisco, you mentioned living in San Francisco, I just invite people to think about the map of San Francisco and where the parking garages are. And they're not over in Richmond and Sunset, you know, the more car dependent areas, they're in the, you know, the financial district and and surrounding areas. So to more walkable. So people have trouble with that kind of a paradox, but if you're not planning for it, it's going to happen to you. And that's not what we want. Okay. Is there any other books you'd recommend? So in college, I read Suburban Nation, mm -hmm. which is Andres Dewani and Elizabeth Plotter Seibert. And that, I don't know, you know, today would, would that be like a stand shocker of a book? Probably not because it's just kind of foundational stuff. But for me, what was helpful then, my year 2000 self was, oh, this is not just a Fresno thing. You know, places, places make choices and those choices have consequences. So I guess that's the common thread between the two. Okay. You Let's read that see. with some, maybe some Lewis Mumford or 
or yeah. I'm, I'm trying to think of some other books that uh, kind of in this domain. But there's a, there's a whole world of amazing books that have come out about thinking about cities and 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 you know urban development and urban renewal and totally. I also yeah I would maybe in that vein point to Triumph of the City, hmm. Ed Glazer. Yeah. So I love Ed Glazer's stuff. Hard, he's he's great. Yeah. Hard to be a U Chicago economics trained person without pointing to the the Ed Glazer approach to urbanism. Yeah, yeah. Kind of that conversation we were having about, you know, the, the limits of Jane Jacobs mm-hmm, mm-hmm. changing world. Yeah. 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 I, I I think the most recent Ed Glazer book he he put one out, I think just after just after COVID, just about thinking about cities. You know, yeah, and I haven't gotten to it yet, but yeah. Right. Yeah. So yeah. to close, where can people find out more about the downtown partnership and how can they get involved? Yes, come visit us online at downtownfresno.org. Uh, we do keep the site up to date with everything from event information to real estate listings and and online on social media. We're generally at Downtown Fresno and are active daily and get a lot of great interaction from from our our community. All right. Well, thank you for speaking with me. This has been super informative. I appreciate you taking the time. Yeah, Jordan. Thank you. Great, great conversation. Thanks for listening, everyone. As always, you can support this podcast by leaving us a rating and review or by making a financial contribution at our Patreon page, which is www.patreon.com slash Fresno's Best. We'll see you next time.